Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of the AI Best Business Show. Today I have with me Hamad um, Aziz, or has he, uh, Mo Aziz. He's one of the fintech uh, co-founders of Pluto, a startup in the Middle East. Um, Mo is a very interesting person. I follow him on LinkedIn, Twitter, and I'm honestly excited for this episode because of the amount of stuff he has to share and the information he has about fintech in the region, uh, investing, uh, and the creator economy. So. Mohammed, let's start with this. Uh, how does the uh, fintech landscape look right now in the region? Sure, yeah. I guess, you know, firstly, thank you very much, Ahmed, for having me on the show. You know, this is awesome. Oh, wait, I'm so sorry. I think I was, uh, I was muted. You're, you're, you're good now. But yeah, what I'm saying is, you know, firstly, thank you so much for having me on the show. This is awesome. Super excited to get through this episode with you. Um, yeah, so I think um, that's an interesting question. So, what is you know what does a fintech landscape look like in the region right now? I think you know what I'd like to start off with is the fact that if we um, if you had to compare twenty nineteen or you know twenty eighteen twenty nineteen when I was first dabbling my you know da like dabbling my fingers into the fintech space out there to now, I think I think there's been just you know dramatic like a dramatic change across all fronts across across the number of companies being formed, the number of founders building fintech, um, the number of people across the region that now, you know, that now understand what fintech is, the regulatory landscape, et cetera, et cetera. And if I, do, you know, if I had to dive a bit deeper, um, I think, you know, this would be best explained with examples. So back in 2019, when I was kicking off my last startup along with my co-founder, Ahmed Dappi, which started off as Plaid for the region, really building out infrastructure where, you know, we need to build bank connectivity to power other startups. Um, at the time, we were part of the, you know, of the DIFC's FinTech Hive Accelerator program. And, um, you know, part of that was meeting with a bunch of local banks um, and just interacting with these banks. At that time, we were so kind of like shut down where banks just couldn't fathom a fintech building an infrastructure layer on top of them, building that connectivity to power other fintechs. And, you know, fast forward to now, we've got so many different infrastructure plays across the region and banks suddenly becoming pro fintech, not only becoming pro fintech, but even investing in fintech. And, you know, some examples would be Mushrik Bank investing in NIMCARD, which is an issuer processor, much like Marketa, and in turn, you know, in turn, empowering fintech, right? Um, regulators, right? Back then, regulation was super great. I think it's still developing, but we've come a long way where there's a path to building a payments company in the region. I'm obviously, you know, talking about this from a UAE land, you know, from like the lens of the UAE right now. But even in all these neighboring countries, in Saudi Arabia, in Egypt, et cetera, et cetera, there's just such rapid development that's happening. And I feel like this is just the beginning. The flywheel is just on the verge of really spinning fast. You mentioned something that's really cool. You mentioned that when you were building, uh, is it DAPI, right? Oh, yeah. uh, banks weren't accepting for any startup to come and build on top of, uh, on top of them as a, what's changed from there to now? Like what, yeah. what mindset to change? And I know an additional question would be, I know a lot of people in the region still hold back on using uh, online payments, credit cards. What changed from there to now uh, to see this progress? Sure. So I think a couple of things. Let's start off with talking about, you know, from, from the bank's point of view. So from the bank's point of view, I think, firstly, banks have seen some serious fintech players that have really created a dent in the ecosystem. Um, think BNPL players, so folks like Tabby and Tamara, for instance, um, payments companies like Checkout.com and so forth. These companies have grown rapidly and have really captured such massive volumes in the region that I think we're now at a point of time where banks have come into agreement on the seriousness of these fintech you know, technology players who can really create a dent in the ecosystem. And I think... I think another piece that has been super critical 
is the is the global investment that's come into the region from Silicon Valley, from Europe, from the UK, from globally from all these different countries pouring into the technology landscape as a whole. And I think the fusion of, of these two elements has just has really instilled this a lot more seriousness when it comes to financial institutions looking at fintech. And I think this is where fintech companies are no longer seen as these small, very nascent startups, but more as hey, this is opportunity. We should join hands, work together, and build for a greater, bigger cause. Um, the second thing that you mentioned was around the adoption front. You mentioned that folks in the region are, you know, or like at least historically, there's been this hesitation to use digital payments, to use your card. Um, I remember my father until five years ago being fairly skeptical to pay utility bills with his card. It's like, hey, you know, somebody might, somebody might yes. partner for and you know. We'll buy groceries with it. I don't know, but interestingly enough, I think I think that um, that has changed rapidly, and I think I think um, hesitation of using cards and digital payments is now a stereotype and no longer the truth. Um, if you just look at Apple Pay adoption, for instance, the UAE and Saudi rank amongst the highest in the world. In fact, I've been spending the last couple of weeks in North America. And believe me, I personally feel like the UAE and Saudi probably have a higher percentage of merchants accepting TAPE than North America. And uh, again, I might be wrong here, but you know, I've definitely come across more instances where I've been asked to insert a card versus tapping my phone. So what I'm trying to get to is that this is where I genuinely feel like we're at this very pivotal moment where, we're, where you know, one, we've leapfrogged our way into mobile payments, into tap pay and so forth. And I think we're just going to continue evolving from here. And I definitely agree on that front. Uh, two years ago, before COVID started and all of this, I was watching a documentary about China. And I've noticed in the documentary, everyone uses WeChat mm -hmm. to do everything, including their payments. No, no one barely uses cash or card. And I live in, I've been living in the US for the past five years, and I haven't seen the US get this technologically advanced and people adopt using uh, tap payments or credit cards in a huge amount uh, up until recently and they've been catching up but you mentioned a fact maybe i haven't been to countries in the region like uae saudi arabia qatar kuwait but i think we're we're far advanced and we could be more far advanced than the us as a country uh, going on we spoke about uh, the general look about fintech in the region you're building pluto card right now mm -hmm. uh, and one of your interviews you say you're building the ramp for the middle east uh could you explain to anyone who's listening to us what is ramp and then what is pluto uh, how did you come across this problem how did just a general idea of how did you come up across the, this problem what gap did you find and just an explanation about pluto in general sure absolutely right so in terms of how did I come across the problem, I think we'll start from there. So obviously my start in the FinTech space, just to give some context there, I started off trying to build a consumer play back in 2018. Um, failed at building a consumer play given the fact that the infrastructure didn't exist. Jumped onto building infrastructure, um, essentially an API company, empowering other FinTech players and empowering businesses that wanted to automate some or the other payment function. And what I came to realize over time was that outside of, outside of tech companies per se, there was this massive ecosystem of businesses that wanted some sort of a payment function to be automated from the business that wanted to automate payments to suppliers, to drivers, to contractors, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of these businesses, or, or rather most of these businesses, weren't necessarily a technology company and hence weren't willing to consume an API. And that is where it started becoming very evident to me that business payments as a whole are super clunky, need improvement, and there needs to be an out-of-the-box product for the 90% who aren't a technology company. And that's really how, you know, how Pluto got started. Now, Pluto was initially not starting off as a corporate card company, but the mission was very much on let's improve B2B payments, the whole, you know, the process of a business making a payment. 
And after multiple iterations, it became very evident after spending time with a ton of different businesses that one big issue across lots of different business categories in the region has been operational spending, um, operational spending, employee spending. And um, what, you know, what we mean by this are all of those day-to-day expenses a business incurs, be it from the driver paying fuel at the fuel station to the PRO paying for licensing fees at a government department to paying for subscriptions online, et cetera, et cetera. And um, you know, these aren't necessarily bank-to-bank transfers. And that's where it starts becoming very tricky because across the entire region, most businesses have access to a single debit or credit card with no functionality to limit spend or restrict spend. And most of these finance managers or business owners are petrified of handing their bank debit or credit card to their employees to incur expenses. So the solution, you've, you know, you've got businesses that, that supposedly use petty cash, which isn't so petty, you know, which, which really isn't petty anymore because as you scale, it amounts up and they start distributing cash to employees to incur expenses. And in other cases, you've got a ton of businesses that either distribute a manager or business owner's personal card to employees to incur expenses. And lastly, you've got businesses that pass on this entire burden onto employees to incur all of these expenses. And um, these employees only get reimbursed close to a month after because it's not easy. Uh, it's super expensive to be paying employees on the move. Uh, and this basically results in cash strapped employees, fraudulent transactions, lost cash, et cetera, et cetera. And that is where we said, you know what? Let's make the process of operational spending efficient. And that is where we're starting off with with a smart corporate card. Um, and the way this would work is it works seamlessly in tandem with whatever bank account you're using. Um, however, you would now be able to create unlimited virtual or physical corporate cards for your employees and really control spend by restricting spend limits on them. You could restrict them per day, per month, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you, you could restrict categories. So for example, if you want to hand a card to a driver to use on fuel, you could restrict spending by fuel uh, as a category so that now this card doesn't work everywhere. Oh, wow. That's, yeah. that's and, cool. Uh, and all of this while getting instant real-time visibility on where the spend is happening. One of the biggest problems with distributing cash or you know handing over personal cards, et cetera, is that most businesses don't even get that visibility on where the spend is happening, when is it happening. And uh, so for us, you know, that is our starting point, really solving for that piece and eventually um, eventually moving on to solve a ton of different problems that businesses have today when making payments. So to give a general picture, uh, to simplify it a little bit, Pluto, what you're doing, you're, you're having, you're giving companies the ability of issue credit cards or cards to their employees mm-hmm. with limited spending. Is that it exactly? So, you know, pretty much, right? Um, we're not starting off with credit though, where essentially right. at this point of time, you link your bank account, use the money that you already have. We just, you know, in a way, supercharge your existing banking functionality by giving you the ability to create multiple cards and place spend limits and restrictions on them for your employees. Okay. And the money is coming from your bank account. So you as Pluto are doing deals with banks um been able to do that or yeah just to like get more technical to understand the more technical aspect so there are multiple things out there right we mm-hmm. we work closely with with multiple banks in the region to, to issue and create these cards because at the end of the day these cards have to ride the rails of of existing banks so we work right. very closely in tandem with local banks in the region okay my question here would be why if if I'm a company and I have a bank account, mm-hmm. why am I not being able to go to a bank and issue multiple cards for my employees mm-hmm. and just have this limited spending on this card? So why do I have to yeah. go to Pluto or different uh, different uh, solutions out there? Sure. So I think you know the problem over here is twofold. One is that with Pluto, we we give these businesses an extremely 
easy, simplified way of doing this super quickly. No phone calls, no going to a bank. And, and you know, that's the whole point. We, you know, we, we don't want you, you know, we don't want to trouble businesses with them having to go to a bank and apply for different products and so forth. This is super quick. You sign up, you start using it right away. But then in addition to that, we've also built a very sophisticated piece of software um, that just makes the process of controlling spend limits, of getting visibility, of of seamlessly connecting Pluto into your ERP, into accounting software, et cetera, et cetera. So point being that, yes, the card piece is the big, chunky, attractive feature and functionality at this stage, but it's the piece of software that we're building beneath which makes this super sticky and it just makes the overall experience super delightful. Can you tell me? Can you tell me more about? We spoke about the card part. Tell me more about the software part. Mm-hmm. Um, what what gives you an advantage? Is it, is it your UI UX that you're providing for the customer? Is it the functionalities? What type of functionalities you have on the software? Could you talk to me sure. more about that? So a couple of things over there, right? Now, one is that as of today, again, like right now, as uh, you know, as we're talking, I have personally not come across too many banking platforms that allow you to instantly create multiple cards from their platforms itself. So just backtracing a little bit, I think the first thing is that we are instantly giving a very large number of businesses functionality that they otherwise do not have. The second thing is that from a software standpoint, um, there are lots of things out there. One, Although a lot of a lot of what we mentioned may sound super basic, um, there is the, you know the, aside, aside from just good user experience and design, there's a lot of functionality that's baked in, restricting spend by vendors, restricting spend limits, uh, approval flows. You know, think about the company where you've got you know you've got the manager. The manager has an employee. That employee um, has somebody else beneath them. Right, and now you're talking about very complex approval matrices, right? Where um, the guy on the top has probably issued a budget to a department. The department is now issuing a budget to a team lead. Team lead is taking control of some driver on, on the road, for example, right? Right. So, so my point being that you know controlling spend, placing spend limits at a high level seems to be seems to be seems to be overly simplified. But beneath the hood, there's so many different scenarios and edge cases. And we're here to solve for them all. Really building a, a delightful experience for teams at scale. I I think what you what you what you've said up far is really amazing. It looks simple on the surface, but what's happening beneath is is really something that's complex and that really needs uh, people need to look at what Pluto and other solutions are doing. Going more, how did you find your co-founders? Just because this show is to help other people in the startup world learn. How did you find your co-founder? What made you work with them? What skills do you have? And what skills do they have to make you come together? Sure, so um, I'm building Pluto with two co-founders, with um, Naeem and Ridwan. Ridwan, who is my co-founder and and our chief product officer, I met him first in high school. And this is an interesting story. Oh, wow. (laughs) I met him back in year eight or year nine. And, we became friends over the fact that I was the guy who would skip a lot of classes, specifically a physics and mechanics class, because I was busy trying to build an e-commerce company selling computers and <laughs> or rather an e-commerce marketplace. Um, and uh, Ridwan was the guy who always sat in the front seat. So exam time came and would bond and, 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 and that's really how we got closed, right? I just trusted him as like the most reliable guy with the most reliable notes in class. Um, so known him ever since, quick background, you know, quick background on him. He went on to become a software engineer and then you know, spent a ton of time at Shopify and then worked um, worked as part of the early team at a deep learning AI company that eventually got acquired by Square and Cash App. And then he spent a ton of time building some pretty cool payment products at, uh, at Cash App. Um, okay. And Naeem, who is my co-founder and CTO, known him for a super long time. Um, he was with one of my other co-founders, early, early friend when he first relocated from the Middle East to, to North America. 
And we've been in touch ever since. Phenomenal engineer. Again, you know, spent a ton of time building cool products also at Shopify, Square, and prior to that at Uber and IBM. But, um, and then I guess over time, as all of us were going through these different experiences, we just stayed in touch and we converged at one point, just come and build something together, having a very diverse set of experience across product engineering and business. You built, you built the team, you started uh, Pluto. How did you find your first five, 10 customers? You're still pre-launch, right? Yeah, in fact, um, we're very hush-hush on the launch date, but it is uh, right around the corner. We've got customers, we've got a pipeline. We're going to activate okay. these customers very soon. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't know when this podcast is going to, you know, going to release. Uh, we might have active customers at the time that the audience listens to this for the first time. But uh, in terms of how we found them, I think it's always best to start off with friendlies. Um, reach right. for those five customers in your personal network. We've got a burning problem that you can solve with your product, make them extremely happy and then scale. And, um, you know, oftentimes, even when investors ask me, Hey, what does your pipeline look like? And how many customers do you have? My default answer is that, you know, at this point of time, we're only interested in making our first 10 customers extremely happy and everything else will follow. And, and that's exactly what I think every startup should do. Just focus on your core customers, whether it's two, three, four, five paying customers that are core that would help you iterate and change your product to make it look perfect. And then go from there. You don't have to start a startup with a hundred customers and that's probably impossible. Go find your one customer, find your second, find your third and focus on these customers to help you iterate your product. And you bring out a, a great point over here. How does Pluto make money? So for us, it's, um, it's multiple things. It's a combination of interchange revenue. Um, and, uh, you know, their, their platform fees associated with the product. And then eventually along the journey, we anticipate multiple different avenues to make money. Um, again, you know, I don't think I can go into a ton of detail on, on, on some of those, but at a high level today, it would, it boils down to interchange plus subscription fees. Okay, so you're charging subscription fee for using the software and their interchange, depending on how much spend is happening on the card. Exactly. Basically. Okay. Uh, I assume you're seeing a bunch of, I'm not, you don't have a bunch of customers now, but you could see data from what people are spending on, corporates are spending on. What's some interesting stuff you could tell me about the data if you could? Sure. So I think a good starting point would be, you know, would literally be our first customers. A ton of our first customers are super excited to use Pluto for the purpose of spending on digital ads. So today what we've noticed is that with a bunch of these businesses, um, there's, there's this huge conflict between marketing departments and finance departments. <clears throat> and what ends up happening is that most of these marketing fees are paid via cards, Facebook ads, TikTok, Instagram ads, Google ads, etc., And, it's very difficult for finance teams to allocate or, you know, to, to provide finance teams with the ability to make these payments and have autonomy on those budgets. And uh, that, you know, that is a big one. Fleet operators that have trucks and cars moving around, um, they need to pay for fuel, they need to pay for a broken tire or uh, any sort of maintenance along these journeys. And um, so I guess like those are just a couple and the list kind of goes on. But anything right. essentially that's uh, that's an expense on a daily cadence where it is inefficient to have to wait for finance to initiate bank transfers and have back and forth communication on confirmations and so forth. Sounds great. Moving on from Pluto, you start, you co-founded DAPI in the back, which is a YC-backed company. Mm -hmm. I'm interested more of how did you get into YC? What was the experience like? For any founder that's coming new, that's mm -hmm. his talk is just, I want to get into YC. I want to get funded by YC. What do you, what would you say about that? Yeah. So I think, I think YC did two things. Um, yes, it's obviously very advantageous to your startup and to your company, but I think aside from that, it's also super, super advantageous to founders and particularly founders who haven't had Silicon Valley exposure in the past, 
founders who are not from the region. And uh, and I think it, it does a couple of things. One is it really helps broaden your horizon and your ways of thinking because you're suddenly interacting with tons of founders from all over the world, including so much exposure on the you know on the North American way of working in tech, which is super fast paced. It's very cutthroat, and I feel like just being in that environment, seeing all that firsthand, it really starts shaping as a person. Um, beyond that, I think it's really helped me personally build a phenomenal network. In fact, a lot of our investors today were the result of me being in YC. Yes, I was in YC with Dappy, but um, I'm reaping the benefits of that even today at Pluto. Uh, folks like Kareem Atiyat Ramp met him after getting into YC at, at, at Dappy. Imad um, from Mercury Bank, he was, you know, he he interview prepped me before, I, you know, before I went for my first YC. Oh, wow. Okay. So point being, a lot of great folks in the fintech space, um, YC became a reason for me to interact with them. And then two is, I think once you've built that network in Silicon Valley, it also starts building a lot of legitimacy as a founder, um, you know, from the North American ecosystem, where I feel like it, it, it just helps a ton, even when you're trying to secure investment from outside the Middle East, where now there's this layer of legitimacy, right? It's like, oh yeah, you know, you, you know, you, you know, you seem to know a lot of the people that I know. And I feel like that, that ref check, just knowing, you know, having, having people in common, I feel like is, is the number one method of at least filtering someone who might be scammy versus someone who's not right. Um, yeah. And, and then coming back to, you asked me, how did we get in? To be honest, we, um, we applied, um, we applied prematurely when I think two weeks into deciding that we want to build this company. And I did that very intentionally. Right. I, you know, I, I had a feeling like I almost felt like there's an 80% chance that we're going to fail this, but here's why I did it. So we started, you know, we, we started working on Dappy back then it's summer. And my thought was that if we apply today, showing them exactly and very truthfully and honestly what we have today. And if we fail it, when we go back in six months from now and show them all the progress that we've made, we should have a much better shot at getting in. And that's exactly what happened. So, okay. So you apply the first time knowing you probably won't get accepted, exactly. but knowing in six months, you're going to show progress and get in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, that was a play there. Oh, okay. That, and. And during the six months, you put your head down and you built a great product and showed progress. That, that's a factor. And I think what we could take out of this is that for any founder out there, just focus on your product, get get into YC, build your network and build, and meet new people, get experience to give yourself legis- legitimacy and go out in the real world and build maybe a second startup if the first one failed. I mean, look, um, I don't think the intention should be on, hey, let's do this to like, you know, have a first failure to build the next one. <laughs> but, no, exactly. But yeah. that's an encouragement for founders. Or, or if, if your first was a success, then that's yeah. great. Absolutely. If it wasn't, then go for your right? second shot. 100%. And I think the beauty of tech is that this is an extremely forgiving, you know, an extremely forgiving ecosystem. I would totally put my money on a founder who's failed in the past than a founder who is, you know, who's never failed, but has also never proven to build something phenomenal. Right. And, and, and we could see a huge example with WeWork's founder. He failed WeWork yeah. from hugely, and now he's building a second uh, startup in the Ab- web three space. Absolutely. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that we were founder. I just started watching, uh, we crashed. I don't know if you've watched yeah. it. Uh, I haven't watched it yet. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's, it's an interesting show on, on the WeWork story. <clears throat> but yeah, you went into YC and you got backed by YC. Now building Pluto, you raised money again, and I think the last round you raised was a six million dollar round. Yeah, is that correct? That's correct. Can you tell founders or people listening to us what does the raising money look like? Um, should founders is is it a full time job for a founder to raise money? Uh, how does the process look like? Do you approach investors? Do a investors approach you just in general? Sure. What are your thoughts? So a couple of things. I think it's a combination, right? So, um, you know, for me personally, again, uh, diving into 
diving into my story, I probably had investors pinging me all throughout my time between starting Pluto and after Dappy. And I think oh, wow. when you okay. realize that, that once you get the ball rolling on, on you know, on, on building and being a builder, um, investors are always curious to see what you're on to next. And for that, even though I didn't have an immediate plan on what I was going to build next, I just had a very strong conviction that I will come back to build again. Um, and I had a one-liner, you know, a one-liner on my LinkedIn that essentially said building something new, right? Uh, which I think a bunch of founders generally have on there. <laughs> right. Um, but then, of course, you know, it is it is two-way. When you actually go out to fundraise, you've got investors, you know, reaching out to you, but then you're also reaching out to them, right? Um, and uh, yeah, I think um, could you? Um, I think you mentioned, you know, you may have mentioned something else that I missed. And I was, I was thinking like, what does the process look like when you approach investors, mm-hmm. how does it look like? Do you have to have a good story, a good product? What are the elements that make investors want to invest in you? Well, I think it's a couple of things right now, obviously this is super cliche and I'm probably repeating this, um, or, you know, I'm repeating what's, what's being said a gazillion <laughs> times out there on tech Twitter and just everywhere. Right. But, um, investors invest in teams and right. When we say investors invest in teams, yes, you know you can't be you can't, you can't be trying to raise money for something absolutely ridiculous that makes no sense. You've got to you know you've got to have a story as to what you're building. But I think team comes first. And when I say team comes first, that basically boils down into how much conviction the investor has in the founders. And and I think that is where that is where if you look at the scale of what a founder has achieved or what that background is. From building conviction on the founder itself, I think the higher the conviction on the team, it, I mean, again, now times have changed post uh, post markets kind of tumbling all over the place. But right. I'm, I'm talking for at least for at least the good times, right? But essentially, what I've noticed is if you kind of look at the scale of of um, of product versus you know versus founder background. If founder background is let's say solid, right? You come off as as someone you know who's who's got great experience, who's you know who who investors are super convinced and bullish on. Um, I've noticed that it's generally easier to raise financing before necessarily having a ton of product evidence done. And I mean that that's also pretty intuitive, right? Where if if experience is lacking, then you got to prove yourself again to kind of fit into that bracket of a good team and that is where then you probably have to do more work on product or have more evidence right. on what you would so, yeah. so i think what you're saying it kind of balances out if you have a good a great team with experience in the space you're building in before and you're coming you don't have you have an mvp not necessarily a full functioning product you you you'll be able to raise money if you don't have a great team you have to focus on your product and your customers to be able to raise money. So you're right. And I think like it, it all boils down to building trust, right? Right. Um, and it's, it's, it really comes down to, you know, do whatever it takes to build that trust. Sounds great. That's a great segue. I think I saw on your LinkedIn that you, uh, you're scout investing for Sahil, the founder of Gumroad. Is that mm-hmm. still true? It is. Yeah. Uh, how, how did you get into that? How do you get into investing? How does investing look like? Um, I'm interested to learn whatever you have to share. Yeah, totally. So for me, I'm not a full-time investor. I invest a little bit of my, you know, a little bit of my own money in, in you know, in different founders and startups that I'm bullish on. Um, and aside from that, in terms of being a scout for Sahil, um, so a couple of so, so, so sometime last year, Sahil came up with this model of. Uh, of, you know, of, of getting deal flow through folks that work in tech right. and essentially sharing carry. Right. And, um, and th- you know, that's how, the, that's how that got kicked off. I applied. Um, there was a, there was a short selection process got selected and I just find that as a good way to keep myself entertained and, uh, let's say, you know, build, uh, get some, get some street cred for deal flow. <laughs> 
how, how do you manage your time between building and investing? It, like, does it get conflicting sometimes? Uh, do you feel overwhelmed? How do you split your time between building and investing? So I think the best way to put this is that, you know, I'm a full-time builder and I'm a, you know, I am highly a part-time investor wherein, wherein, you know, I'm not chasing the best deals out there. Uh, okay. I'm, you know, for me, building my company comes first and any spare time that I have on the side that allows me to kind of like look at something or two, I'll take a call with a founder. And have a how do you find founders or how do founders found you? Like how do you get deal flow? So I think it's, um, it's a mix of different things for the most part right now, given that I'm at this early stage building Pluto, I do not participate in any outbound activity at all. Uh, for the right. most part, it is anything that comes inbound through Twitter or LinkedIn or Bookbase or just any of these mediums. But um, currently, I um, I just cannot justify doing any any of that outbound work, given that uh, we're launching Pluto. If any founder listening to this, what kind of startups would you like to invest in, or like what 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 like of pitches or pitch decks would you like to see? So I think that's an interesting question. Um, one is, um, I think, again, super cliche, but I think it works. Just having pitch decks, which are which are extremely concise, right? Just And my question specifically was like, what kind of industries, what kind of startups okay. would you want to invest in? Okay, so so for me, from an industry standpoint, there, there, there are certain industries I'm passionate about, uh, passionate and bullish, right? Um, and I also like to look at things that I truly understand. So, you know, spaces that I track most closely generally happen to be fintech, <clears throat> the creator economy, and businesses that kind of sit at the intersection of fintech and the creator economy. Okay. Um, I would say for me, that is a space that I'm just closest to because I understand it. Uh, and I also, just given time restrictions as a founder, do not have the liberty to really go down multiple rabbit holes truly understanding different industries. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask you some questions about the creator economy, but I have two questions first to follow up on this one. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what kind of, like, you, we're, we're part of the MENA region. Mm -hmm. What what two startups have you invested in or three startups you could mention that you've invested in that you really, okay, these startups are going to be great in the future. The, they have huge potential. And what startups would you like to invest in that you didn't get the chance to get in? Right. So currently just so happens to be that I've only done two in Mina. Okay. And they're both stealth. So. <laughs> okay. You get, I, I can't, I cannot talk about them right now, but, I, okay. but, but I promise you in, um, in the weeks or months to come, I will definitely disclose. So, How about outside of the Mina region? Have you invested in startups that not yet personally, no. uh, probably past okay. flow. I think, um, Hopefully, at some stage, when I've got some more cash flow in my pocket, <laughs> right? But yeah, uh, what are start if you had if if you if you were to own a fund, mm -hmm. what startups would you like to invest in that are working right now in the region? Big startups, small startups that you you think have potential to be the next Kareem, the next mm -hmm. uh, unicorn? Yeah, so I think um, I think from a MENA region standpoint, um, let's think through this, right? I think um, there are a couple of interesting plays um they give me a moment to think through this it's um it's hard to like directly put in three companies but um hmm. i think huspy for sure even though okay it is it is prop tech great founder great friend of mine and i think i've been tracking their progress um explosive growth um i think these guys are very well positioned to really attack the prop tech space hard. Um, and you, you, their name was Huspy? Huspy, H-U-S-P-Y. Okay, okay. Um, founder Jad was actually part of the right. team that um, that, le that, led our, that led our round at Beckel Capital back in the day. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, that's one that comes to mind. Um, I would say that I do think that that one of the infrastructure plays um, will really blow up big. This could be, you know, this could be um, this could be NimCard with whom you know with whom we're working with closely, or <clears throat> or or you know some of these others. But I think that's definitely a, a you know a, a long term play at least uh, 
at least in my opinion, but like someone needs to build out infrastructure, the region, um, to, you know, to create an ecosystem. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think that comes to mind immediately. I probably have to think a bit deeper to really okay. put some tops here. Um, the creator economy, uh, we had a previous chat before, and you mentioned that you're, you're really bullish on the creator economy and you're passionate about it. Why are you passionate about it? What ideas do you have around the creator economy? If you could share some of these. Yeah. So, you know, post, post leaving Dappy, I just spent a lot of time diving deep into, into the space. And, right. um, uh, you know, I'm a creator at heart before getting into FinTech, I was a filmmaker and nice. Uh, and I was, a, you know, I, I worked in the drone industry, essentially doing drone filming and photography that got me to eventually be on set on a bunch of Jackie Chan movies, a bunch of, oh, wow. a bunch of top tier TV commercials, <laughs> um, you know, in, in the UAE became the first guys to, uh, to, to live stream the Burj Khalifa fireworks on YouTube. So I've done a bunch of that stuff and, okay. and, and I guess, you know, this is where creating is very close to my heart now. When I think creator economy, I think that this is it's kind of the wedge that is and that's just rapidly creating more and more solopreneurs. And I think this will start becoming evident, not just in content creation, but I think the creator economy of the future holds folks from all sorts of industries, from, you know, from engineering, from design. And like, we're already seeing that. Um, I can't remember where I read this, but I've, but, but I've read this concept in multiple places, the concept of the shrinking organization in the future. And like, we're already seeing this, you know, we, even at Pluto today, we, you know, we, for, for certain functions, we work with contractors for certain, for certain specialist design functions, we work with contractors. And uh, so one, I think, I think that a decade from now, you're going to have a much, much larger number of solopreneurs per se who work for themselves. And we're going to start seeing smaller company sizes as a whole than what we've, you know, than what, than what we've used to be seeing in the past. Okay. Um, so I think, I think that's like one piece over there. And two, I think naturally the byproduct of which equals a bunch of tools for creators to create and a bunch right. and, and naturally into my sweet spot, which is financial services for creators, which becomes most exciting. Right. In fact, yeah, and, yeah. In oh, fact, go ahead. I'm sorry. The last thing I was going to say is, you know, there was a point of time, again, now you've got a couple of companies attacking this problem, but I'm not sure if you've heard of the company pipe that is revenue financing in a pretty creative right. manner. Yeah. You know, th there was a point of time where I wanted to build a pipe like play for, you know, for creators, essentially for YouTubers. I mean, just imagine this, right? Imagine, um, Imagine more vlogs in the Middle East or Mr. Beast in North America and, and, you know, the ability, you know, the ability to basically go to those folks and be, Hey, listen, you know, we will, we will upfront you revenue that we think you're going to make over the next X number of months or years. And by the way, your fans are going to be able to invest in your future revenue and trade those. Right. Um, right. Like, like imagine as a fan, a super fan of, of Mr. Beast or Movlogs and, be, and, 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 you know, like being able to actually own a piece of, uh, you know, of the individual's uh, YouTube video, right? So a lot and, of things are very exciting. You mentioned that, and I, I was thinking the other day, I, I don't know if you're a soccer fan, but Barcelona currently, they're having financial issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine if they could have, they could have their fans or the creators help them throughout their financial issue and maybe... Uh, get something in return, whether it's uh, some ownership or some uh, signed T-shirts or something of that sort. Totally. And that's part of the greater economy too. How much, how cool would that be that I, as a super fan of Barcelona, could help Barcelona overcome their financial issues? Mm -hmm. And I think here in the U.S., we start. There's a couple going, like couple uh, creator startups going on in the region, MENA region. It's still kind of far away. Uh, maybe in the couple next few years, we'll see something pop out. Maybe not. Who knows? Totally. Last question. And I, oh, do you have something to say? I'm yeah. sorry. Um, I was just going to say that, you know, your, your Barcelona story, it just makes total sense, you know, a hundred percent. And plus like creators have so much distribution as well. Right. But a hundred percent agree. I think, uh, I think as like 
as a super fan of a, of a football club, um, I would totally love to you know get something in return for for helping the club survive. Yeah, it could be a signed T-shirt yeah. uh, from uh, M- Messi is not in Barcelona right now, but it could be a signed T-shirt from a Barcelona player or from, from a the, player. Or... Exactly, uh, absolutely yeah. right. But um, yeah, agreed 100%. I'm coming to my last two questions. Uh, what if 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 you were not working on Pluto right now, what two startups ideas or one startup idea you would go build something around? Hmm, interesting question. So um, at a high level, again, um, so I, I guess I think what would be helpful. I'm happy to you know I, I'm happy to share uh, what space I would build in. Okay. On one hand, again, as mentioned. I love the creator economy, so, so possibly some sort of a, you know, some sort of a tool, possibly at the intersection of, of financial services and the creator economy. I, you mentioned that in MENA, it still seems to be nascent. While it seems to be nascent, I think I think that region has an exploding number of creators, uh, even though most right. of them come from, you know, from like the influencer space and so forth. But I think there's a very large number, you know, and a lot of those having large audiences across the world. Um, and the second space, which is very different, but a space that I'm personally passionate about is the neuroscience and biohacking space. I'm no doctor. Oh, by wow. Okay. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm no doctor by profession or a health <laughs> expert, but I do see a future where, where, you know, a lot of biohacking tricks start becoming the norm. Um, and, you know, we're starting to see these currently in a ton of ATC products in North America, for instance, right? You've got, um, you know, you've got um, coffee infused with certain types of herbs to to boost memory, to boost brain function. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, that's just like one of many examples. There's a, there's a D2C brand in Canada called Strange Love that promotes what they called, uh, you know, what they call shroom coffee. I mean, it's not literally shrooms of the trip, but... Um, it's um, it's strange. It, who was that founded by? Strange love. I, I, I think I've heard about it. I, I can't. You know, I, I can't. I can't remember the founder's name. Okay. I've consumed. I've consumed okay. gummies out here that have got these that have got mushrooms like lion's mane and right. things in there. But all in all, I think I think there is a ton to be explored in that space. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's still uncharted t- territory, and I also I'm also very bullish on a lot of past taboos, kind of you know, becoming, becoming biohacks of the future. Um, so yeah. Okay. Last question. And I think I have to mention that because you're in the FinTech space, Bitcoin, web three, especially Bitcoin, uh, the crash in the market, what would you be on unvi- your advice for founders, investors? Um, like what's your kind of investment thesis? And again, this is not an investment advice for anyone who's listening, but just wanted to hear what are your thoughts about it? So, Here's the thing, right? I think, yes, given market conditions, there are multiple factors that are tied into this downturn, but the downturns are new, right? I, um, again, some more backstory over here very quickly. Um, I had made a fair amount of money back in 2016, 17, when the last company that I was a part of had exited. And two, back in the UAE at the time, I won a government price of a million dirhams um, as part of the Drones for Good Award, and I lost all that money two years later to crypto. Uh, I had okay. quadrupled it, but then, but then I lost everything. Mm-hmm. And if I have to draw that parallel, um, during, during, you know, during that time from January of 2017, um, through, you know, through that bull market and then down into the bear market right after, you saw Bitcoin move from you know, the, the three $4,000 levels up to $20,000, all the way down to like five thousand dollars or so, and then, and then going back to sixty thousand, back up stabilizing for very long at the ten, twelve k levels, right? Yeah. And then eventually shooting through the roof, right? So I mean, and again, um, this has happened in the last cycle in an almost identical manner, and I just feel like it's happening all over again. So personally, and again, this is no investment advice. Um, I am continuing to be crypto bullish. And I'm continuing to buy along, you know, along the way down, um, because 
I'm just personally super bullish on the cycle repeating itself. But again, obviously, this by no means is investment advice, as you mentioned, right? And I just feel like this is crypto's normal cycle that it's going through. And uh, the cycle that it goes through for, you know, the whales and the old timers to uh, wash out the new guys who then learn their lessons and start again. Right. Yeah. And you, you mentioned something. And again, that's not a person uh, investment advice, but Bitcoin over the since its start up until today has shown an upwards trend for most of for most of it. And my general thinking is invest in Bitcoin as a long-term investment, 100%. Uh, totally. not a short-term investment, just be the Warren Buffett for Bitcoin. Be there, it's that uh, Warren Buffett says it's the time in the market. So be there for the longest time in the market you can, and you'll see benefits. And I think it's very early in the Web3 and Bitcoin space. Uh, Mo, thank you so much for this great episode. I think we covered a lot going from FinTech in the region, creators economy, investing, uh, startup ideas, uh, great episode. Uh, any plugs you have, you want to share? Where would people can get more of you? Uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, yeah, uh, totally. Anything you want to share? Absolutely. So um, they can find me on LinkedIn, searching for Moaziz, or find me on Twitter, Moaziz underscore one, and uh, happily chat. Are, are, last quick question: Are you hiring for Pluto? If someone wants to apply, oh, where, yeah. where do they apply on? So we've just started building our sales team. Folks can go on to plutocard.io slash careers, or just, you know, they can drop, uh, they can drop us an email at careers at plutocard.io. And uh, currently in terms of hiring, we're starting to build out our business team and looking for a sales rock star to come on board to really be that first person on Pluto, <clears throat> on Pluto sales org. Um, so, you know, anyone listening over here, if you're interested in working in an extremely fast paced environment um, and you know if you're if you're keen on having a shot at shaping the future of Pluto sales org uh, please apply sounds great thank you one more time Mo I really appreciate your time thank you awesome thank okay. you very much Ahmed this was fun I really enjoyed it and uh, we'll be in touch